John 10, 40-42. And he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was first baptizing, and he was staying there. Many came to him and were saying, While John performed no sign, yet everything John said about this man was true. Many believed in him there. Luke 13, verses 22 through 35. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Once the head of the house gets up and shuts the door and you begin to stand outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open up to us. Then he will answer and say to you, I do not know where you are from. Then they will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. And he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but yourselves being thrown out. And they will come from east and west and from north and south and will recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first and some are first who will be last. Just at that time, some Pharisees approached saying to him, Go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I reach my goal. Nevertheless, I must journey on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet would perish outside of Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, but you would not have it. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time when you will say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we ask your blessing upon our time of study this morning. We thank you for your mighty and awesome word, that it is inerrant and infallible, that it is supremely trustworthy. Pray that you would instruct all of us through it. Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, that you would bring conviction of sin upon our hearts, that you would grant us repentance and faith. Save us even this day, Father, for those who are lost. You would draw the lost unto Yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We noticed last week, after exposing the inconsistency, the obtuseness, and the hardened unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders, that Jesus was then threatened, first of all, with death by stoning, and secondly, then, with arrest. Both of those actions were averted, however, because Jesus disarmed their attempt to stone him by asking them, For which of my good works do you intend to stone me? The Jews were taken aback by that question. They explained, It wasn't for any good work you've done, Jesus, but for blasphemy. Because you, being merely a man, make yourself out to be God. Then Jesus continued by exposing the hypocrisy in their statement by demonstrating that even the Scriptures themselves refer to some unrighteous judges found in Psalm 82.6 as being gods. These were described this way because they've been delegated responsibility to serve God by leading God's people and making judgments in accordance with God's Word. And if those unrighteous judges were in some sense called gods in Psalm 82, to whom the Word of God had merely come, then why would... Why would they deny Jesus being called God, who was the incarnate Word of God, who was sanctified and sent by God the Father into the world? Jesus continues by granting that 
You don't believe somebody just because they make claims like that. I mean, anybody could just claim to have the prerogatives of deity. And there's a reason why there were blasphemy laws given in the Old Testament. There's a reason for those. So it's not enough just to make claims of these sorts. So by all means, Jesus says, test my works. Take a look at how I have lived my life. Look at the signs I have performed. He said, if I don't do the works of God, don't believe me. But if I did the works of God, then even if you don't believe my words, believe my works and follow them to their logical conclusion. But again, rather than believe, the Jews sought his arrest, and so Jesus eluded their grasp and went away. Another demonstration of the fact that the time for Jesus had not yet fully come, as John 7, 8 says it. The end of John 10 then tells us, as we read this morning, that Jesus went away from Jerusalem yet again, and he traveled out beyond the Jordan to the place where John the Baptist had been baptizing. Now remember, John had been arrested and beheaded by Herod, so he is dead. But Jesus now travels out to the area where John had spent so much of his ministry. Jesus, we're told, remained in that area for some time. We're not told how long, but for some time he was there. And as always, that didn't mean that Jesus engaged in a vacation or engaged in idleness. Time in that region afforded Jesus with an opportunity to interact with people who had been highly influenced by John the Baptist's ministry. Those who had benefited from John the Baptist, we're told in John 10 at the end, were able to recognize Jesus as the embodiment of everything that John the Baptist had prophesied. All that John had said about Jesus was true. The populace was also confronted, though, with the difference between John and Jesus, right? Because they say here, John didn't do any signs. Obviously implied here that Jesus was doing signs among them. John did no sign. While Jesus must have provided a multitude of evidences and signs regarding who he was. Now remember, this is all in accordance with John the Baptist's preaching and his ministry. We read in John 3 some time ago. The following words from John he said, you yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. He who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard, of that he testifies, and no one receives his testimony. He who has received his testimony has set his seal to this, that God is true. For he whom God has sent speaks the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. He who believes in the Son has eternal life. But he who does not obey the Son will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Now, certainly those who had benefited from John the Baptist's ministry had been primed for Jesus, right? They had been readied for Jesus, the Messiah. John had pointed others to Christ. By the way, that whole context flows out of this fact that these disciples come to John and say, hey, everybody's going to Jesus to be baptized by him. And John goes, yes, I rejoice in this. I must decrease. He must increase. And now that Jesus comes to the same area where John had spent so much time, Jesus now gives these people opportunity to verify Jesus' messianic credentials. And their response was a wholehearted affirmation that this man embodied everything that John the Baptist had spoken about him. Now, I want you to note this in contrast to last week, right? Remember, Jesus goes up the Feast of Dedication, Hanukkah, He's traveling through Solomon's porch, Solomon's portico. He's teaching the Jewish people. What a completely different response Jesus receives there in the temple as what Jesus receives on the other side of the Jordan where John had been baptizing. In Jerusalem, in Solomon's porch, he was flatly rejected by the Jewish leaders to such an extent that they picked up stones to stone him and then attempted to arrest him. But here across the Jordan, Jesus received a much different response we're told many believed in him there. Alfred Edersheim comments, Thus did John the Baptist, being dead, yet speak. And so will all that is sown for Christ, though it lie buried and forgotten by men, 
who will spring up and ripen as in one day to the deep, grateful, and eternal joy of them who labored in faith and have gone to rest in hope. A great illustration of the fact that you might plant seeds of the gospel in people's lives and not have the privilege of seeing those spring to life. John the Baptist had done his ministry and work, and he didn't see necessarily those disciples of his come to Christ. Meanwhile, here they had come. I encourage you, church, don't grow weary in doing good. Because even though you might not see the harvest that is reaped, what the Lord will do through your testimony and witness. And with that, we once again leave the Gospel according to John for a few weeks to consider some intervening events as accorded by Luke. And that's why we'll be in Luke 13 for us this morning. These last few months of Jesus' earthly ministry were quite full. Remember, we're just getting some snapshots along the way. We, we often encounter phrases. It's not uncommon for us to find phrases that we do at the beginning here, verse 22 in Luke 13. And he was passing through from one city and village to another teaching. Here's kind of a, here's a description of a, in a summative fashion what Jesus was doing. He was passing through cities and villages teaching. Everywhere Jesus went, he not only did perform signs and miracles and and healings and demon exorcisms, but he continually taught the people. And certainly we're going to see in the gospel material that the majority of Jesus' teaching here towards the end of his ministry is going to be specifically targeted towards his disciples, preparing him for his coming death and then resurrection, and what would happen with the church following these events. But there's certainly still a sense in which his teaching is meant for the general populace as well. Nonetheless, Jesus, while continuing to travel about quite a bit, even back and forth between Jerusalem, as the Apostle John tells us, remember there's several times that Jesus comes into Jerusalem for several of the feasts, as John mentions. There's a sense in which all of Jesus' ministry is moving towards Jerusalem to a final journey to Jerusalem. This is why Luke 13:22, the second half of it says, and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. The Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, kind of proclaim Jesus' ministry is kind of moving toward Jerusalem. John tells us of moments where Jesus has actually come into Jerusalem and gone back out again. But the Synoptic Gospels kind of move in their plot and their narrative towards this one big final meeting with Jerusalem. This is why back in Luke 9.51, we are told that when the days were approaching for his ascension, Jesus determined to go to Jerusalem. He set his face as a flint to go to Jerusalem. That determination was all because Jesus' mission was all about coming and going to Jerusalem, where Jesus would willingly lay down his life for his sheep. Jesus said in John 10 that no one could take his life from him. He laid it down on his own initiative for his sheep. No one could take Jesus' life away from him. He had the authority not only to lay down his life, but also, he says, to take it back up again. Jesus came to die that we might be forgiven. And he rose again that we might have life. While Jesus' death was soon approaching, he still had some important lessons to teach along his journey. Some of those are recorded here in Luke 13, 23 through 35. In a sermon entitled Gospel-Saturated Response, Gospel-Saturated Response, two moments from Jesus' ministry illustrate beautifully how the gospel transforms our response to people what I want to consider this morning. How does the gospel transform, transform our response to people? The first moment is one in which Jesus will respond to a theological question. We see this in verses 22 through 30. The second moment, Jesus will respond to a human directive or command in verses 31 through 35. And Jesus' example, as always, is worthy of imitation. How are we to respond to inquiries that come from the world? And how are we to respond to instructions that come from this world? How do we respond to inquiries? How do we respond to instructions? Well, the first moment we encounter here in Luke thir- is in 13, uh, Luke 13, 22 through 30. And Jesus responds to an inquiry. And I want you to write this down. This is point one. Answer questions by posing more crucial ones. Answer questions by posing more crucial ones. Answer questions by posing more crucial ones. Jesus is confronted with a question. I want you to recognize this morning, dear friends, I'm sure you already know it, but I want you to really value this. 
Questions are tremendous opportunities for the gospel. When someone asks you a question, you have been granted a tremendous opportunity for the gospel. Jesus is traveling, we're told, through many cities, teaching while he's journeying to Jerusalem. Jesus knows exactly what is before him. He knows what's going to happen to him in Jerusalem. He knows why he came. There's a big thing on his mind. And yet I find it so fascinating throughout Jesus' ministry that he can be interrupted. That along his journey, while he's teaching, people can come up to him and ask him questions and he'll interact with them. We see this time and again in Jesus' ministry. As a matter of fact, a lot of Luke's gospel, a lot of the teaching that we find from Jesus is in response to questions that come from people. Jesus responded to questions. And on this particular occasion, someone raises the question, Lord, are the ones being saved few? Are there not that many people who are actually being saved? Now, we're not even told the identity of this person. It's still someone. So it could be a disciple. It could be a general crowd person. It could even be a Pharisee, for that matter. It doesn't indicate who this person was. And I think perhaps that's even to reiterate the fact that it didn't matter who this was. Jesus was not too busy to answer questions. Whenever someone asks a question, you've been given an opportunity to speak to them, to someone who is awaiting your reply. You have a sort of captive audience. There's a sense in which you coming into this room today have given me an audience of sorts. But when somebody asks you a specific question, you've been given, they've given you an audience. They're asking you for input. Certainly, we must take care that we not treat this lightly, that we not waste the opportunity when these moments come. Don't neglect moments where people ask questions whenever they occur and from whoever they occur. My son, Joel, who's ripe old age of two, um, some months ago had gotten into a habit of asking me at bedtime, and Lee remember this too, Daddy, why Jesus die? Why Jesus die, Daddy? We'd ask that question, and I can remember answering that question the first few nights, but it just kept happening. I can remember one particular night I started to wonder if maybe I should just, you know, stop answering the question and just tell him, I've already answered that question, Joel. And I'm so thankful that the Lord kind of caught me before that intention came to fulfillment. I realized that here I was being granted every night with my son an opportunity to share the gospel. How can we pass that up? How can we pass that up? Don't despise small beginnings. Don't neglect opportunities from wherever they might come. Remember, just because you may be familiar with the answer to a question, that doesn't mean everyone else is. Consider how many times you needed to be taught some things. How often do you need to be not only taught things, but reminded of things? 1 Peter 3.15 exhorts Christians to always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Always be ready. Don't pass over opportunities to answer questions. Make the most of every opportunity. But the second thing we can think about is not only value these moments of questioning, but we need to become skilled at refocusing questions and refocusing inquiries. And in particular, Jesus is a master at this throughout his ministry. And in this particular scenario, he refocuses from the general to the personal. He moves the question from the theoretical to the practical and personal. This certain person asks Jesus, Lord, are the ones being saved few? Notice that Jesus doesn't answer that question directly. Now, as we read through the text, you'll see that implicitly he answers the question. But his method is often less direct than might have been expected. I mean, isn't that just a yes or no answer? Are there few being saved, Jesus? Yes or no? But Jesus doesn't give a simple yes or no in response. This matter had been one that rabbis of Jesus' day had discussed. It was generally accepted among the rabbis that virtually all Israelites would be saved and enjoy the kingdom. Some believed those who committed particularly heinous sins would be excluded. It was generally believed that Gentiles would be excluded, anyone outside of Israel. The matter may have been raised due to some of Jesus' earlier statements. Most notably, Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13 and 14, Enter through the narrow gate, 
For the gate is wide, the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small, and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. That seems like a pretty straightforward question, right? You just have to say, yes. Yes, there are few. But Jesus doesn't give that answer. Why on this occasion does he not give these particular mentions of the many or the few? You know, there's a lot of similarity between what Jesus says here and with John in Matthew 7. But notably absent is many go on the broad path and few through the narrow gate on the narrow path. He doesn't mention that. As a matter of fact, quantities of people are largely absent in Jesus' answer. This guy wants to know a number. Give me a number, or at least a, a quantitative sort of number. Are there few? The only quantity Jesus gives is in verse 24 when he says, Many who will seek to enter will not be able. But that doesn't answer that question specifically. It speaks to another area of concern, which we'll talk about in a moment. Instead, what Jesus does speak about in his answer is about types or kinds of people. Not the amount of people, but the kinds of people. He describes workmen of unrighteousness who will be excluded or cast out. And then on the other hand, he talks about the patriarchs, about the prophets, and about men from the east, west, north, and south who recline in the kingdom of God. Even verse 30 contains no indication of how many last will be first and how many first will be last. The NES inserts the word here, some, to try to give some meaning to this, but it's left absent from the Greek. It just reads, last ones will be first and first ones will be last. Implicitly, it might be concluded from what Jesus says, from the the narrowness of the door and the need to struggle to enter through it. That leans us in the direction that few will be saved. But that's not the focus of Jesus' answer. Note that. So what is? What is the focus of Jesus' answer? Why does Jesus respond to this question in the manner that He does? Why such a end-around sort of way? Why, why in this implicit sort of way? Why not just directly answer the question? Perhaps before answering that question, I want to think about what sort of question this man raised and consider what might have been some of the motivation behind the question. The question is a general one. It looks for a quantitative answer to the amount of people being saved. It may have been posed merely to get Jesus' take on an issue that had already been debated by teachers in Israel. There's often times where we see them asking questions to Jesus to see if they can peg him in what school of the rabbis. Which one do you ascribe to? It is particularly on the divorce issue. It might have been birthed from a consideration, as I mentioned earlier, of Jesus' earlier teachings on the exclusivity of the gospel. Remember, you and Jesus said it's easier for a camel go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. And remember after making that statement, what do people say? And who's being saved? Perhaps they are trying to get some clarity on statements such as those. It might have arisen out of a concern from the other direction that Jesus spent too much time with undesirables in society. Perhaps he was too broad-minded. And what are the limits to the way you understand the kingdom, Jesus? Or it might have just been some idle curiosity, a matter of pure speculation. We're not told explicitly in the text. Now, obviously, Jesus knew what motivated this man. Even though we don't, he knew what was in this man's heart. But it is a reasonable thing to consider motivations behind someone's questions. There are times when a straightforward answer is not the best one. Have you ever been there before? You're asked a question, but a straightforward answer is not the best one. Even when the Bible presents a straightforward answer to a question, there might be good reason to respond in an indirect way, just as Jesus did on this occasion. The need of the moment may call for a different sort of response. This is what I'm going to get at here. In order to respond in this way, in order to respond in wisdom, biblical discernment is required. It's important that we ask God for wisdom and ask God that He grant us compassion in our relationship with people. Sometimes what's required is for us to read between the lines and get to the reason and motivation behind the question. Now granted, Jesus could do that perfectly. We cannot. But it is wise as much as we can 
to consider and to ask the Lord for wisdom, to consider how to respond to questions when they come. It wasn't that very long ago that I received an email. I get email inquiries um, semi-regularly. I received a question via email, and I responded to the email in a pretty matter-of-fact fashion. And to just straightforwardly answer the questions that were put to me. And it wasn't until later when I sat down with Matt Dustin, our headmaster, that I realized that my answer wasn't the best, considering what was really the concern of this individual when they asked the question. I had answered straightforwardly. I had given a correct answer. The answer was right. I had answered what they even asked me. What else could you ask for, right? Except that sometimes people ask the question, but there's really a more pressing matter behind the question. And you only know it if you'll take the time, number one, to pray for wisdom, and number two, to, to uh, get to know people. We'll make mistakes like this, but we can ask God for wisdom to develop better skills in searching out the root issue behind questions. And what Jesus does in this occasion is turn the question posed from a general philosophical level to the personal level. Jesus' first word is to include not only the questioner, but also the entire crowd around him with a plural imperative, a plural command, struggle. That's how he starts his response. Struggle or fight. comes from the Greek word agonizomai. We get the word agonize from. To struggle, to strain, to fight. It's used in 1 Corinthians 9.25 to describe athletic striving. It's used in Colossians 4.12 and 1 Timothy 4.10 to describe Paul striving to labor for God's glory and the church's good. This word describes the intense expenditure of effort to make use of energy in an excruciating way to accomplish some particular task or a particular goal. So rather than allowing the opportunity to be lost with a simple yes, or no, Jesus exhorts all that are around him to redirect their focus, to redirect their energy. Instead of considering how many people will be saved, Lord, Jesus asks his audience to consider, are you among the saved? Instead of considering how many are going to be saved, Jesus redirects and says, are you among them? Why is this question so crucial? Why is this a more crucial question? Jesus explains in the text, because many are self-deceived. That's one reason. Because many are self-deceived. Jesus says, many will seek to enter and not be able. He refers to those who will be on the outside and knock on the door saying, Lord, open to us. But the master of the house will answer, I do not know where you are from. They will plead, we ate and drank in your presence. We taught and you taught in our streets. But again, the master of the house will answer, I do not know where you're from. And then they'll be told, depart from me, all you evildoers. Jesus says, as a result, these individuals will weep and gnash their teeth as they see others in the kingdom of heaven and they themselves thrown out. Notice that these individuals have an expectation that they should be let in. They they come up and, hey, let let us in. Their response is, no, I don't know where you're from. And then they go on to try to make objections and reasons as to why they should be let in. But note that They were trying to be let in on faulty grounds. They had not entered in through the narrow door. They speak of having eaten and and drank with him. They speak of having heard him teach in their streets. But a great reminder, the mere acquaintance with the things of God is not enough. Mere acquaintance with Jesus' teaching is not sufficient. External association with God's people is not enough. Just because you've read some of your Bible, just because you've attended a church, just because you believed in a Judeo-Christian ethic, doesn't mean you're saved. The picture is that there will be many who are self-deceived, who think themselves on right standing with God, but they have not entered through the narrow door. Jesus says you should be more concerned with this question than how many. You should be considered, consider the state of your own soul in light of the gospel. 
answer is that men must repent. They must believe in Jesus Christ. They must trust Him as their Savior, as Lord, as their champion, as their King. He is the door. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through Him. This question is crucial because many are self-deceived. Many believe themselves to be Christians when in fact they are not. This personal exhortation from Jesus is also crucial because time is running out. It's crucial because many are self-deceived, but it's also crucial because time is running out. The narrow door, the only right way to standing with God, is a, also a soon-closing door. It's narrow, and it won't be open for long. And once that door closes, it will not be reopened. Time is quickly fleeing from us all. It's one of our most precious commodities. Don't waste the time that the Lord has granted you. Don't act as if you are immortal. We all have a date with death. Are you ready for it? Are you ready for it? You don't know when it will be your time to go. So the only way you can be sure is to do what Jesus calls people to do here. Agonize. Strive. Fight. That you might enter through the narrow door while it is still called the day. There's no guarantee of future moments. So make the most of this one. It will be as it was in the days of Noah when God shut the door. You ever imagine what that scene must have been like? We often think of all the cutesy animals going on the ark. I remember Christian doing a great job at family camp on this and even passing out little handouts from other churches that you know just portray this nice little cutesy animals all hanging outside of the ark. Very seldom do you see pictures of dead bodies floating about. And all the death that came as a matter of God's judgment. There was salvation only in that ark. Only those who had entered through that door while the door was open. Once the door was shut, there was no more opportunity for entrance. And God shut the door. Look at it in Genesis 7.16. Do you imagine how many people, as the floodwater started to rise who might have been in the vicinity of the ark, might have clutched at the ark, knocked on the door, let us in, let us in, but there was no entrance. When the floods came, it was too late. Not only a narrow door, but it's a soon closing door. And rather than speculate about the fate of others, Jesus calls them to redirect their focus. Be sure that you enter by the narrow door. Because on the last day, many will find that they had put it off until it was too late. J.C. Ryle says it so well. There is a time coming when many will repent too late. And believe too late. Sorrow for sin too late. And begin to pray too late. Be anxious about salvation, too late, and long for heaven, too late. Hell is nothing more than truth known too late. Remember the example of the foolish hoarder. He amassed wealth for himself, thinking that now he could kick back, eat, drink, and be merry, have an easy go of life. But he didn't know that that very night his soul was required of him. All the power, all the prestige, all the wealth in the world cannot stave off death. So your only hope is to cling to him who died and rose again. To be found in Christ. The narrow door. The only door to right relationship with God. If you're found in Christ, then death is no longer a feared enemy, but a conquered foe. And merely the means by which you step into the Lord's presence. You see, many expend energy discussing where others are with God while neglecting to consider their own situation. Some may spend their entire lives pursuing theological discussion, deep philosophy, metaphysics, ethics, and the like. And all the while, not consider the state of their own souls. How often have you heard people ask questions like these? What about all those people in Africa or Asia who have never heard the gospel? Ever heard that one before? 
While this is a question that could be answered along the lines of Romans 1, for example, they're all without excuse. We can make statements like that. It'd be a straightforward answer. It'd be true. It'd be right. It might be a much more profitable discussion should you instead shift the question to the personal level. How about you? What God does in the case of those individuals that you have just mentioned will be just. You're not living in one of those areas, and you're not one who has never heard the gospel. What will you do with Jesus? Will you repent? Will you believe in Christ? I'll tack on to that. I can assure you that God cares about them more than you do. And perhaps God might save you to send you to them that you care so deeply about them. You see, while direct answers to theological questions are good, it may be that an indirect answer that refocuses a person upon their personal responsibility before God might be better. And then after having rephrased the question at hand to the more crucial question, we then need to be ready to answer that crucial question by offering good news. This is what the gospel is. It's good news. While it's crucial that we redirect people in their inquiries to consider their own souls, we must then direct them to the all-sufficient Savior. When man sees himself aright, he'll despair of his own working. If he really sees his depravity, if he recognizes just how sinful he is, if he recognizes his inability, he'll despair of his own working to accomplish salvation. And will be brought to the perfect place where he can be saved. The striving that Jesus speaks of here is really a reference to making use of the means of grace which God provides his people. You see, when God awakens a concern for salvation within someone's soul, he also grants them and provides them knowledge of the truth. He gives them his word and the blessing of the Holy Spirit to work in and through his word to transform his people. Spiritual disciplines such as Bible study and prayer and worship and fasting do not in and of themselves save us. Remember, we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. But these are all means by which God works in us. For ultimately, it is God who is at work in us, both to will and to work for His good pleasure. Philippians 2.13 And what's so glorious in this text is that Jesus says here, that there will be people included from the north and south, east and west, along with the patriarchs and the prophets. What a blessed truth to know that God is saving people of every tribe, tongue and nation. That they'll come from the east and the west and the north and the south and they'll recline in the kingdom of God. While the scriptures are clear that not all are saved, what is glorious is that God is saving people from everywhere. Even the nobodies living in nowhere are not beyond the reach of God. And this is why the gospel on one hand is the most exclusive of all religions. Only in Christ is a man saved. But also it's the most inclusive because all sinners are welcome. All sinners. Isn't that good news, church? All sinners are welcome. Jesus says, behold, one's being last will be first, and one's being first will be last. Jesus exposes the tragedy that some who think themselves in right standing with God will awaken to reality on the other side of death and will be met with eternal punishment. Don't miss the good news present in the text as well. Some who are last will be first. What tremendous news that hardened sinners, sinners from all over the world will be saved as trophies of God's grace. To be specific, that Gentiles are made fellow heirs and fellow members of Christ's body. Fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Ephesians 3.6 Verse 1 Peter 2.10 says it. Those who were once not a people now are the people of God. Those who had not received mercy have now received mercy. Answer questions by posing more crucial ones. The second moment that we encounter here is in verses 31 through 35. Here Jesus responds to an instruction. In particular, it's a warning. 
This is point number two. I'd like you to write down. Answer warnings by presenting more critical ones. Answer warnings by presenting more critical ones. Answer warnings by presenting more critical ones. In particular, we need to meet worldly concerns with trust in divine sovereignty. Note how Jesus handles this. Now, at this time, we're told specifically, at that time, just at that time, verse 31, some Pharisees approached saying to him, go away, leave here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, note the difference. Previous text, we had a question. Is it just a few being saved, Jesus? Here's a command to Jesus. Leave here. Go away. Why? Because Herod wants to kill you. Now, when you read this, does it sound at all a little fishy to you? Who's the one offering this warning to Jesus? Say it for me. The Pharisees. Does this seem a little fishy to you at all? We haven't had a whole lot of great interaction with the Pharisees in Jesus' ministry. I mean, you think that their concern is genuine? Are they really concerned for Jesus? Some argue yes. Perhaps some of the Pharisees, like Nicodemus, were favorably disposed to Jesus. Or at a bare minimum, liked Jesus better than they liked Herod. That's potential. If that's the case, they either acted to save Jesus from what they felt was a significant threat, or they were informed of this potential by Herod purposefully, that Herod might just scare Jesus off and out of his region. All potentials. Others argue, no, they're not genuinely concerned from Jesus. Perhaps it was just a ploy set up by the Pharisees to force Jesus back into a realm where the Pharisees exercised more control or to see if they could hinder Jesus' ministry at all by airing false threats. We're not told definitively what is behind this. What we do know is that Herod was a man who was particularly concerned about his own power and prestige. He didn't like anyone gathering crowds for themselves. Remember, this was the same man who imprisoned and then beheaded John the Baptist and then afterward was concerned... Remember we read this too, that Jesus might be who? A reincarnated John the Baptist, exactly. By the way, interesting note, Herod will have a meeting with Jesus. Luke 23, verse 7 and following. And Herod's exciting, excited about that potential. He's wanting Jesus to perform some signs and miracles for him. Jesus doesn't do anything. Then Herod asks him a bunch of questions that he's got ready. Jesus answers not a word. Doesn't say a word to Herod. A good point to say here that, again, discernment must be called for even with questions. It's not every question is necessarily deserving of a response, but many are. So the threat from a human perspective was real. But that's just the problem, isn't it? It's only a human perspective-informed threat. It only contemplates the situation from a human and therefore limited perspective. Jesus is not at all frightened by this threat. Why? Because Jesus is on a divine mission. He knows what he's been given to do. And nothing would stand in the way of his completing his mission. He tells the Pharisees, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons. I perform cures today and tomorrow. And the third day I'll finish or reach my goal Nevertheless, I must go on today and tomorrow and the next day, for it cannot be that a prophet to be destroyed outside of Jerusalem. The description of Herod as a fox is variously interpreted. Perhaps he means that Herod is worthless or destructive or conniving or cunning. I kind of prefer that last indication. It also fit with seeing why Jesus says that maybe what he's seeing here is a devised plot between the Pharisees and Herod. For I do ask the question, why is it that Jesus says to the Pharisees, you go and tell that fox? <laughs> He's like, it's almost like as if he knows that there's something. The Pharisees have some sort of relationship with Herod. He's like sending them, almost sounds like he's sending them straight on back. Tell that fox. Then I'm going to continue doing what I've been commanded to do by my father. Where Jesus did all the will of his father. He explains that he would continue doing what he had been doing. He would not stop doing his father's will simply because some finite ruler made some threats on his life. 
Jesus had come to lay down his life. He had no problem dying. He came to lay down his life. But he knew that no one could take his life from him. And he knew that his meeting with death would happen in Jerusalem and nowhere else. Jesus says he will work today and tomorrow. On the third day, he'll finish his goal or reach his goal. Literally, it translates, I will be perfected or I will be completed. It's the exact same word that Jesus utters from the cross in John 19.30. It is finished. Now, certainly we don't have the sort of knowledge that Jesus did. We don't know precisely what lies in front of us as Jesus knew. Yet we can possess a spirit of calm, unshaken confidence about things to come when we remember our lives are in God's hands. Again, J.C. Ryle says it well. Happy is that man who can walk in our Lord's steps and say, I shall have what is good for me. I shall live on earth till my work is done and not a moment longer. I shall be taken when I am ripe for heaven and not a minute before. All the powers of the world cannot take away my life till God permits. All the positions of earth cannot preserve it when God calls me away. Our immediate response to worldly warnings must be to trust in God's sovereignty. And there's tremendous peace and hope that is found in knowing that God is in control. Another thing to mention here, when warnings are presented to us, that it's a great opportunity for us to reverse the warning and offer a warning of our own. They're concerned about Jesus' physical life. Jesus is not so concerned. He knows he's on a divine mission. He trusts in divine sovereignty. Here Jesus provides a different perspective for these. The account ends with Jesus crying out in verses 34 and 35, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together just as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not have it. Note where responsibility is being squarely put here by Jesus. He lays it squarely upon the Jews themselves. Jesus explains that Jerusalem is acting towards him as it acted towards all those whom the Lord had sent to them, continually killing and despising divine messengers. This passage uses the Greek word fellow, a form of the Greek word fellow, three times. It uses it to refer to Herod's wishing or wanting or willing to kill Jesus. Then in Jesus' willing or wanting or wishing to gather is, uh, Jerusalem's children together as a hen under her wings. And then also again, when Jerusalem wills not to be so gathered. Herod wills to kill Jesus. Jesus wills to gather Jerusalem together. The people will it not be so. Herod's plot is vain, but God's sovereign will prevents it. But God's sovereign will allows for Jerusalem's rejection, such that although Jesus wills to gather her children, he doesn't because Israel does not will it. Now, this is a classic text which emphasizes the responsibility of man. I want to make very, very clear here that a passage like this does not remove God's sovereignty any more than a passage on God's sovereignty removes man's responsibility. Both truths are true. And a consistent reading of the Scripture ends in an undeniable conclusion that God is sovereign and yet man is responsible. Both those truths are true. And while our finite brains may be incapable of understanding how both are true, a consistent and faithful interpretation of Scripture brings us to that conclusion. We too must proclaim where blame rightly lies. Man is responsible for his own rebellion, for his own unbelief. Salvation is offered to men. Christ, these are all truths, Christ is willing to receive sinners. But sinners are not willing to come to Christ. And hence, few are saved. Salvation is holy of God. None but the elect are saved. No man can come to Christ unless the Father draws him, John 6.44. But if we go to destruction, it will be wholly our own fault. 
Men will reap the fruit of their own choices. God leaves many to follow the defiant rebellion of their own sinful hearts. But Jesus adds these words of warning. Verse 35. Behold, your house is left to you desolate. And I say to you, you will not see me until the time comes when you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Consequences would fall upon Israel for its unbelief. Here is a much more crucial warning. Catch it? Much more important than our physical lives is our spiritual condition. Jesus says here that their house will be left desolate. What a opposite. What, what did Jesus wish to do? He willed to gather them together as a hen gathers her chicks. And what does Jesus say as a result of their rebellion and rejection, their unbelief? What would happen? They would be abandoned. They would be left desolate. It wouldn't be until they exclaimed, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, that they would see Jesus. Now, I had this read in our opening scripture reading from Justin. It's a quote from Psalm 118. I'm going to start in verse 21. Listen to this. I shall give thanks to you, for you have answered me, and you have become my salvation. The stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. How often is that verse quoted in the New Testament? This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. O Lord, do save. We beseech you, O Lord. We beseech you, do send prosperity. Blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Now those words are mentioned at Jesus' triumphal entry. When Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem, those words were uttered. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And for that reason, some argue that that's what Jesus is pointing forward to here. You won't see me until that moment. You won't see me in Jerusalem until this is announced and then I'll come in. And while there might be a partial fulfillment of those words found there, I think nothing less than Jesus' return when he comes with the clouds and every eye will see him. Can it, can it bring to pass the fullness of what is being pointed to here? Both in the blessings bestowed on those who are the saved and the judgment that will be meted out on the lost. Do you realize this? One day, one day, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That recognition will be made by everyone one day. But if you wait until it's too late you'll recognize that in the fury of God's holy wrath. But if you will be saved while still called today, you can enjoy the grace and mercy and love of God, the forgiveness of God. One last thing to mention here, while Jesus gives this warning, he, He's not worried by worldly concerns because He's on a sense of divine mission. He responds to their warning by giving a much more important and critical warning. But also I want you to note this, that he does it in the context of great compassion and love. A favorite thing that this world accuses Christians of is judgmentalism. We live in a very pluralistic society where you know, we're supposed to say that every road leads to God. There's a sense in which everyone does, right? But there's only one to his saving grace. All the rest to his judgment. But when we say that Jesus is the only way, that's considered hate speech in the world that we live in. It grates against a pluralistic society. It offends people. But recognize this. Jesus proclaims this truth, and we proclaim this truth, not to keep people out, but to help them to come in. If I know which of these doors, if there were eight doors on this wall, and I knew which door led to life and which doors led to destruction, would it be loving for me to say, take any door? Would that be the loving thing to do? Well, you know, all doors lead to the same place. No, they don't. The loving thing would be to proclaim the truth. It's that door. Enter through that door. Strive to go through that door. Every other door leads to destruction. 
Christians aren't hateful for speaking the truth. It's from deep love and compassion that we speak and call men to repent and believe. Even notice how Jesus pouches this whole thing. Verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem! Jerusalem! Picture of Jesus' compassionate heart longing that these people would be saved. Jesus' lament here is so important. It pictures how much He loves Jerusalem. He's crying out. He's yearning for her repentance even when it is so stubborn and so hard-hearted. Jesus' heart here is just as the heart of God is depicted to us. We read this morning, 2 Peter 3, 9, The Lord is not slow about His promises. Some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. Ezekiel 33:11. Say to them, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from His way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. Why then will you die, O house of Israel? Please, when you return a worldly warning with a godly warning, make sure it is full of love and compassion. Make sure that they know you care about them. Yes, you care about the glory of God first and foremost, but because these men have been created in God's image, you long for them to be made right with holy God. You long for more trophies of grace to enter into the kingdom. Jesus utters these exact, almost verbatim, exact same words in Matthew 23, 37-39. Some as a result have said that this is just, you know, Luke is just placing this in a different place. It's the same account, only said once. I instead think that Jesus uttered these words twice. That he said it on this occasion, and he said it towards the end of his ministry as well. Just reiterating his love and compassion for the very people who were so rebellious and so murderous in their intentions towards Him, the very One who had come as the Messiah, as the Christ, the One who had come to offer salvation to them. The Apostle Paul knew just how important it is for us to be prepared to respond to the world. He included the following instructions to the church in Colossians 4, verses 2-6. through He said this, listen, Devote yourselves to prayer, keeping alert in it with an attitude of thanksgiving, praying at the same time for us as well, that God will open to us a door for the Word, so that we may speak forth the mystery of Christ, for which I have been imprisoned, that I may make it clear in the way I ought to speak. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, as though seasoned with salt, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. Do you not see the connections between His instructions there and what Jesus has modeled for us? How do we respond to outsiders? What wisdom is required? What concerns that we be clear in how we speak? That we might make clear the mystery of Christ. That we might conduct ourselves with wisdom. That we might make the most of every opportunity. That our speech would be seasoned with grace. That we would know how we should respond to each person. Jesus modeled how we can be ready to respond to each person. How our conversation can always be with grace as though seasoned with salt. We need to learn from Him how we can shift the conversation from the theoretical to the personal and from worldly concern to godly concern. We too must learn how to answer questions by posing more crucial ones and how to answer warnings by presenting more critical ones. We too must become adept at exhorting unbelievers to consider their souls, the brevity of this life, the narrowness of the door of salvation and the certainty of coming judgment. We need to speak the truth in love, living in wholehearted pursuit of God's glory, showing compassion towards those who are lost. That, my friends, is gospel-saturated response. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are students in your classroom. We're so thankful that you are the most able teacher. 
Holy Spirit, I pray that you would take these truths and drive them deep into our hearts and minds. Prepare us for conversations with outsiders, with those who are lost. Give us wisdom. Help us speak with compassion. Help us sound the warning. Speak the truth in love. Help us redirect focus. For all of these things, we ask that you would develop in us because faithful to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. May you save a great host for your kingdom and for your glory. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.